You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you here, and it's always a blessing to be able to gather together to worship our Lord and Savior as one, and so thank you, worship team. Thank you especially to Tim, who has a, who hurt his hand, but he's still playing the drums. Like, that's pretty awesome, hey? Talk about sacrifice. All right, so today, as uh, you might have already guessed, we are going to be continuing our sermon series through the Minor Prophets. It's only three weeks left after this, uh, which we've titled Major in the Minors. And today, we'll be making our way through the prophet um, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Habakkuki, Habadabadu, I don't know. It's, it's a hard name to say. To be frank, it's not just his name that's difficult. The subject matter in the book itself is, is also difficult to grasp at times. In fact, he asks questions like, why does God allow evil and injustice to continue and to prosper? How can God allow suffering? And how could God use people who are evil to accomplish his will? So, you know, pretty simple questions like that. Though with that being said, while they're challenging, it's also these questions and the way God answers them, which makes the book of Habakkuk so valuable to us today. Especially because these are not only timeless and difficult questions, but they're very common questions for us today in our journey of faith and doubt. In fact, I found that when I, when I typed the words, the three words, why does God, in, in my Google search bar, the top five results came up as, as a picture there. Why does God allow suffering? That's the top result. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God hate me? And that question usually indicates, you know, something, personal suffering, something going on in someone's life that they would be like, why does God hate me? Why does God let this happen to me? And then the next question, why does God love us? And then the next question was, why does God allow evil? So the top five results, right, they, they all are, are pretty intense and they all have to do with, with what Habakkuk is asking here. And, and this means that these are important, and philosophic, important philosophical and theological questions that millions of people are asking. And the amazing thing is that right here, you know, in, in the Bible of all places, that might surprise you, in the Bible of all places, places we have a prophet who's already conversed or dialogued with God about them. He's asking the same questions, and he's making the same complaints. So in a sense, Habakkuk has already asked them for us, and it's amazing to see his own personal journey towards God from confusion and, and complaining to one of faith and trust as God responds to him. Which also means that, you know, whenever we go through seasons where we're finding ourselves struggling with these same topics of suffering and and evil, we can actually pour over these pages as a resource, which which I hope you do anyways, because that's also partly the point of this series, that we're, we're giving you an overview of the book so that you can go home and read it yourself over the week and study through it yourself. But about this book in particular, one of my commentaries states, 
It says, the prophecy of Habakkuk is, is one of the most challenging and engaging books in the Bible. The issues Habakkuk treats are profound and complex. There are no easy answers to be found in the book of Habakkuk. It demands serious prayer, thoughtful reflection, and persistent reading over and over again to attempt to understand the truths that are contained in this prophecy. Yet, for the Christian who dares to take the challenge, the spiritual rewards can be immense. So, I dare you. Take the challenge. That, that was my challenge this week, and it's one of those messages that had me working on uh, Saturday as well. You know, this, it's, it's, it's intense. It's immense, as this quote says. And so, while I'm going to be giving an overview and, and touching on the overarching details and lessons found in this book, the truth is that to fully experience its depth, it needs to be studied again and again. Of course, this is true for all of the Bible, <laughs> but is especially so for this book. So, we're going to be scratching the surface this morning, but it should still be good. On, on that end, let's, let, let me give you a little background to the book. So, it's generally agreed that Habakkuk was a prophet who is active around the year 600 BC. There's some disagreement to that, but generally it's agreed. And um, so, to put that into historical context, that would be approximately 15 to 25 years before the Babylonian exile of Judea and about five years before the birth of Daniel. Uh, that's just approximate, but just to give you kind of context. Um, he, would have, he would have also been active around the same time as other prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Nahum. And uh, as a prophet, Habakkuk not only sees a vision from God, he's got, like I said, he's got questions about it. And these questions in the first two of the first three chapters are usually asked in the form of complaints or laments, which often echo some of the psalms of lament, especially Psalm 73, which is actually like um, very similar to Habakkuk's conversation with God. And the first question of concern that he presents to the Lord pertains to the injustice and evil, which he seems to think God has ignored or has allowed to continue in his supposed absence. So let me read that for you. Habakkuk 1, 2 to 4. He says this to the Lord. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. How many of you have felt like this at times? Yeah. When, when you're going through a difficult season or you look around at the world and you see all the corruption and, and the greed and the chaos and you think, where's God in all of this? Doesn't he see what's going on? Doesn't he, doesn't he hear me cry? If he loves me, why doesn't he act on it? Why doesn't he do something about it? This is precisely what Habakkuk is wondering and, and lamenting about. Especially because in, in his day, King Jehoiakim was most likely the reigning king. And according to 2 Kings, it says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, just like his forefathers had done. 
And about that we know from the other prophets, which we've been going through, and from First and Second Kings, that King Jehoiakim's forefathers, except for a few, but most of them had committed injustices like using and abusing the vulnerable to gain wealth and power, committing and even commanding idolatry and worship to pagan gods, committing violence, turning from God's law, the list goes on. So that's probably what was happening in Judea under King Jehoiakim as well. And because of this, the whole nation had fallen into disarray and sin and violence and idolatry. So Habakkuk is asking God, why are you allowing this suffering to go on? Why are you allowing the wicked to to prosper and rule over the innocent? Don't you see the violence and, and injustice that I'm being forced to see and experience every day? And God answers his lament. He answers his complaint. Reminding us, first of all, that we are absolutely 100% allowed to come to God, come before God with our questions, with our laments, with our doubts, with our, with our prayerful, prayerful cries of confusion and help. We're even told to present our anxiety and our concerns to God. And when we do, God hears us and he answers us. Though we have to keep in mind as well that his answers are often already found in the word if we open our eyes to read it and allow the Holy Spirit to lead us into that truth. I mean, that's why it was written and recorded for us, as I'll talk about in a bit. So, again, God and the Bible aren't afraid of difficult and heartfelt questions. He can take it. The Bible can take it. Especially because, as we see here, most of these are already addressed in Scripture. And on that end, God responds to Habakkuk's lament and tells him in in so many words that, that, yes, he does see what's going on. He does see it. And that, no, he's not being idle. He's not ignoring it. Instead, he's doing something about it. He's already working to do something about it. Though... Surprise, surprise, it's not going to be in the way or in the timing he expects. Habakkuk 1, 5 to 6, God says to him, he responds and says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Man, if you you stopped in the first verse, he's like, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And and I'm sure, you know, Habakkuk is like, yeah, yes, yes, yes. And then then God says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. And then he's probably like, what? (laughs) That's not what I thought you were going to say. So God's basically saying to him, you know, check it out. Check it out. I'm doing something so awesome that you're not going to believe it. And to be sure, Habakkuk doesn't believe what he's hearing at all. Because God tells him that in response to Judea's idolatry and violence, he's going to bring discipline upon them by raising up the army of the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty and violent nation, as God calls them, to sweep over them, to bring them into exile. Now, 
throughout this sermon series in, in the Minor Prophets, and especially during our sermon series through the book of Daniel, which we went through a couple of years ago, we, we've talked a lot about how God had used the Babylonians to bring the people of Judah into exile as a, as a form of discipline for their sinful ways, so that they would come back to him in repentance and humility, which they did. But as we've studied this event and, and the prophecies about it, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's thought this. Like, aren't the Babylonians even worse than the Judeans? Like, why would God, who is, who is holy and good, use such an evil and ungodly nation to accomplish his will? And that's pretty much how Habakkuk responds. He's like, God, wait, what? That's, that's not better. That's worse. This is worse. How, how does that line up with, with your nature and with your character? It's like, yeah, yeah, there's bad things going on in Judah, but like the Babylonians? They don't even follow you. Listen to what he says to God. In 12, verses 12 to 13, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's basically saying, saying to God, are, are you not all-knowing and all-wise and all-holy and, and, and incapable of even looking at evil? If so, how can, you, how can you do this? How can you raise up an evil nation like that to, to swallow up those who are more righteous than them? He's like, we're more righteous than them. Why would you use them? And this actually echoes the classic statement given by the anti-religious philosopher David Hume in his dialogues concerning natural religion when he writes, you've probably heard this argument before, he writes, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Well, then he is impotent. Is he able and not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? So this argument has, has since been titled by apologists and philosophers as the argument against God from evil or, the, or as the argument from evil. Because again, as the seemingly simple logic goes, you know, how can a God who is all-loving and all-knowing allow evil to exist, exist? Therefore, if evil exists, God must not. That's, that's their simple conclusion. There's many problems with this argument. I wouldn't put it up there if I agreed with it. Uh, I would try to ignore it, right? Pretend it's not there, but no. Well, there's many problems with it. One of the problems with this argument is that the opposite of that argument is actually what's true. The whole concept of evil actually remains undefined and doesn't even exist without an ultimate good. In other words, there's no such thing as evil without holiness. The things we, we call evil would actually just be part of the natural order without someone holy and outside of creation who defines and commands order and goodness and morality for us. Does that make sense? Another problem with this argument is that it actually leaves out most of God's other characteristics. 
such as his compassion, his desire for mercy over judgment, his patience and steadfastness, his faithful love, his justice and sacrificial grace, his saving grace, all all qualities of God which don't excuse sin, but seek to renew and restore that which is broken rather than just completely annihilate it and get rid of it. And therefore, for this reason, and for many other reasons, like the concepts of free will and human decision, which have, presented by, which have been presented by people much smarter than me, so I'm not going to go there, but for a lot of these reasons, this, this philosophical argument um, has largely been debunked. But Habakkuk actually takes it one step further here and asks God to his face, even, I should mention that even atheist philosophers don't even call out this argument anymore. It's just something that people write on, like, Facebook now. Um, it's, it's largely been debunked. Anyways, but Habakkuk actually takes it one step further, and he asks God to his face, and he says, he says, he says this, if you're all-knowing and all-loving and just, how can you then use evil people for your own ends? He's not saying, why does evil exist? He's saying, why are you using it for your own purpose. Because for him, this, this action doesn't match or fit with the way he sees or understands God. But here's, here's the real question. Is the problem here really with God? Or does his doubt and confusion actually reveal his own lack of maturity or understanding in who God is and how he acts? The same question goes for us, right? When, when God doesn't act in the way we want or expect, is that really God failing us? Or is that actually that we're placing wrong or harmful or misplaced expectations on God? Well, as Habakkuk will be reminded, in a moment here, God never fails. So, looks like the error lies with him. But... Hopefully you guys are following so far. But anyways, at this point, he's so flabbergasted. He's upset. He's possibly even appalled at, at God's plan here. And, and then he says to God with this air of stubbornness, he says, I'm going to sit here on this watchtower, and I'm going to wait for an answer to my complaint. And so that's what he does. And it's hard to say if this is a literal watchtower or if it's a metaphorical one. I don't know. But either way, it's quite clear that he's not going to budge until he gets an answer. He, he wants a better answer. And once again, God eventually gives him one. See, God can take our questions. In fact, he even tells Habakkuk to write it down. He's like, write this down. Make it clear for the benefit of everyone else who will eventually read it. You know what's cool about that? That we're included in that statement. That's pretty cool, right? Like, that God wants us here today to get this, to understand and benefit from his answer. He, he had each of us in mind when, when, when he told Habakkuk to write this. That's crazy. Anyways, so, so he gets him to write it down, and then, and then he also warns him, though, saying that, you know, if, if what he promises seems slow to come about that he should be ready to wait for it, to be patient, that it will surely come and not delay, he says, even if it feels like delay. 
In other words, God is, God's word is always true, and his timing is always perfect. And the fact that he had to say this makes it obvious that this was one of the lessons Habakkuk needed to learn, to wait on God's promises and to trust that they'll come. All right, so if we read through chapter 2, what we find is that God's promise and response to Habakkuk, Habakkuk's complaint against him for raising up the Babylonians to enact his will, again, surprise, surprise, won't really be the answer he wants, but it's the answer he needs to hear. It's not the answer he wants, but it's the answer he needs to hear. And it reminds me of the ways that Jesus uh, often answered the questions of both his critics and his disciples, often in an unexpected way, but yet always exactly what their hearts needed to hear, right? He always spoke to their hearts. It's almost like Jesus is the word of God become flesh or something. Oh, wait, he is. Anyways, God's answer to Habakkuk begins well. Begins well. He tells them that, yes, the Chaldean souls are puffed up, that they are greedy and drunkards, and that it's only the righteous that shall live by faith. Only the righteous shall live by faith. So, yes, they are evil, and yes, their lives are forfeit. God concedes that fact. And then he goes on to present five woes. Not woes as in, whoa, that's so cool, but woes as in, you better watch out, right? Their warnings and consequences, specifically pointed at Babylon in the future, and most likely given to Habakkuk here as a confidence that one day God will deal with them as well. So I'm just going to quickly paraphrase these woes for you. You can find them in chapter 2, but this is basically what he says. He says, woe to those who take and plunder what isn't theirs, and for doing this, they will be plundered by others. Woe to those who build their own empires and, and cut off others for evil gain. And for this, they'll be brought to ruins. Woe to those who build towns with blood and cities with iniquity. For this, he says, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And this is day of, day of the Lord type language, which we talked about last week. And then fourth, he says, woe to those who shame their neighbors by making them drunk. And he says, for this, they'll be shamed in their drunkenness. And what's interesting about that is in Daniel 5, Daniel chapter 5, we find that Babylon was destroyed by the Persians on a night of drunken revelry. See, God does what he says. And finally, woe to those who make and bow down to false idols. For he says, for there are no help and they're worthless. And then in conclusion, he says in verse 20, 220, he says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So what God is telling Habakkuk here with these woes in chapter 2 is that he will eventually bring judgment upon Babylon for their evil and wickedness as well. But more importantly, he's proclaiming that he alone sits in his holy temple. He alone is righteous and sovereign. He alone is God. And therefore, who are we? Who are we to judge his actions? He knows what he's doing. Even if we don't understand it, he is God. This is a lesson that Job had to learn as well, if you read through the book of Job. Finally, though, what's interesting about all of God's woes is that while we can definitely assume he's, he's talking about Babylon, the nation of Babylon, yet 
the mention of idolatry, greed, empire building, drunkenness, violence, and iniquity, don't they also reflect the exact same sins of the nation of Judah, which Habakkuk was complaining about to God in the first place? Yeah, they do. God seems to be hinting at something in Habakkuk's heart, causing him to ask, are the Babylonians really more evil than they are? Or is that just his prejudice? And secondly, if God really did what Habakkuk wanted him to do and immediately dealt with the Chaldeans' evil ways and removed them from the earth or whatever, wouldn't that also mean he'd have to do the same thing to the people of Judah? This is the point. They're all sinful and evil. No one is righteous, right? And in the same way, when when we look at ourselves as Christians, we know that without God's free gift of grace given to us through Jesus Christ who took our sin upon himself at the cross and renewed our hearts, we'd all be toast as well. Romans 3, 3, 23 to 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Habakkuk's eye-opening realization or, or revelation here of God's wisdom and mercy and patient justice isn't explicitly stated next, but it seems to be implied. Because right after God's response, what we can read is that Habakkuk has kind of changed. He's kind of done a 180. And he seems to have finally recognized that God is God and he is not. He seems to humbly concede to the fact that God's ways and thoughts are higher than his, that as it says in Romans, his judgments are unsearchable and his ways inscrutable. That is, we we can't know the mind of God, but we can know God. That's that's the point. We can know God, be in relationship with Him, be filled with His Holy Spirit who does know the mind of God, which means our trust in Him isn't, isn't necessarily based on, on fully understanding what he's, he's doing or going to do, but in knowing Him and in who He is. Does that make sense? It's, it's, like, it's like when I tell my kids to get in the car. Get in the car. We're going to go for a drive. They don't need to know where they're going to get in, they, they trust me, right? Because they know me. They know me. They don't need to know where they're going. They don't need to know where I'm driving them they, because they know me. They know that I'm not going to steer them wrong or take them somewhere horrible, right? Unless it's the dentist. But even then, that's working evil for good, right? Which we'll talk about in a moment. Furthermore, Habakkuk also seems to now recognize that God has every right to deal with evil and sin in in his own way, because his way is always right, even if he doesn't understand it, even even if it's to use those who are evil to be temporary vessels to accomplish his justice and purpose. But let's not make any mistake or misinterpret here, though, for we know, as, as Habakkuk states and, and learns in an even deeper way, that God is holy and God is good, and therefore he doesn't create evil. He doesn't tempt anyone with evil, as the word says, and he can do no evil. 
But in his wisdom, he has the ability to, to redeem it and manipulate it to accomplish his will in bringing justice and renewal into the world. Just as it says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So God has the, the ability to work all things, according, all things for his purpose. This is something to hope in. This is something to hope in, especially in times of trouble or in the face of suffering or, or wickedness. This means we don't have to cower in fear. This means we don't have to collapse in worry because we know that he can and will turn it around and redeem it. For us today, we also know that the penultimate example of this was on that horrible yet glorious moment when the forces of evil nailed and murdered Jesus on the cross. And yet God had always planned for that moment of darkness to become the way of salvation and life for all who now confess and believe in Jesus' name by faith. God used that ultimate act of evil for our ultimate good. He turned what was darkness into light. And in fact, in that moment, Jesus took the weight of all our evil and sin upon himself so that by his grace we're redeemed and we no longer have to live under the weight of our guilt so that, w- so that in his righteousness we can live by faith. Just as God told Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Jesus made that happen. So at this point, Habakkuk is is beginning to understand that this is how God, in his wisdom and sovereignty and knowledge, often acts. And with this change of heart and with an air of newfound humility and and wisdom, Habakkuk records his concluding response like a true over-emotional musician in the form of a prayer-filled worship song. And in it, instead of questioning God's judgment and justice and the timing of it like he did at the beginning of the book, he now humbly asks God for mercy. See that change of heart? Instead of saying, God, what are you doing? He's like, God, just have mercy. Instead of saying, how come you're not doing anything now? He's saying with his newfound humility and a recognition of Judah's deserved punishment, he basically says, I see that you're doing great things, but please, in your wrath, also bring mercy. And then he goes, he goes on to write about a, about a bunch of the times in history when God did that. When he faithfully and timely acted in unexpected ways to bring about his will and divine purpose like during the Exodus or the Battle of Gideon. And that God always showed up with both justice and mercy bringing judgment on the wicked, and giving deliverance to his people. So it seems that by looking back, right, by looking back on what God had done and seeing how he's always acted rightly and faithfully and justly in the past, Habakkuk is then able to place his trust and hope in the fact that God will continue to do the same in the future, just as he's promised. As uh, theologian Eric Redmond writes, These are the words and images of comfort for Habakkuk because he knows that God is faithful to deliver his people and defeat his enemies. The prophet has the assurance of victory over all the problems he complained about at the beginning of his prophecy. We have the assurance that God will act on behalf of his people today because he has acted on behalf of his people in history. 
So again, what's, what's so amazing about Habakkuk is that we get to go on this journey of growth and deeper understanding with him, right? And, and it's such a blessing and a balm for us in our own journeys of faith and doubt and confusion and growing in the Lord as well. And the truth is, like I said at the beginning, I've only scratched the surface here. So again, please go and dig into it and, and pour over this book yourselves. There's so much more to learn and glean from it. But on that note, there are some initial things that we can learn right now as we journey alongside him here. And the first one, namely, is that God isn't ever absent. God isn't ever absent during times of evil and suffering. He's with us. That's his promise throughout Scripture. He's with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He sees it all, and he's always working to turn it for the good of those who love him. Whether that's to accomplish a particular purpose, or to teach us a lesson, or, or to discipline us, or to test our faith, or prepare us to be able to comfort others, or whatever else it is. Or he's, he's always making it purposeful for those who love him. At the same time, the Bible also tells us that Jesus empathizes with us in our weakness and in our suffering and is, is available to be our strength and, and a comfort to us in the midst of it. We can also learn alongside Habakkuk here that God never, never lets evil off the hook. He always deals with injustice, with perfect justice. But yet at the same time, he also deals with it with long, through long-suffering and compassion and mercy as well, as, we've, as most of us have experienced, right? Thank God for his mercy, for Jesus Christ. Which means that while we can trust him to deal with suffering and evil rightly and perfectly, sometimes that looks like mercy or discipline instead of judgment, and sometimes we have to wait for it to come about in full. And, and this, Habakkuk writes, is, is what he's now willing to do. He, he, he's now willing to wait for justice to come upon the Babylonians, as hard as it is. doesn't mean it's easy, right? He's, as hard as it is, listen to what he says in, in 3.16. He says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Like he doesn't like it. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So he's willing to wait quietly. And again, like him, we, we don't like waiting, do we? You know, it's, it's not very fun. We want to see results now, especially when it's during difficult seasons or, of, of discipline or suffering like he's experiencing. We, we want those moments to end as quickly as possible. They're not fun. But the fact of the matter is, is that God does everything in the right time. And if he promises justice and peace, it will come. If he promises to put everything right, he will. Even if sometimes that isn't until the end of days when Jesus returns in glory on that day of the Lord to judge evil for good and renew heaven and earth once and for all. And anyways, that's really our ultimate hope as Christians in the face of injustice and evil and, and, and brokenness in the world as the late Timothy Keller reminds us, and I'm just going to paraphrase him here because he said this in an interview and I couldn't find it, but basically he said something like this. If Jesus really died on the cross for our sin and rose again from the grave, then we can hope in the fact that everything will be all right in the end. Everything will be made 
right. That's our hope. If we trust in this truth like Habakkuk learned to do, then we'll also be able to quietly wait for his promise of justice and renewal. That is, we won't whine and complain to God if, if it isn't coming fast enough. And then again, if, though again, if we do, God can take it. But as I recently read somewhere, when we understand that God is never late, we wait differently. When we understand that God is never late, we wait differently. And finally, on that end, the biggest lesson I think Habakkuk has learned, which we can learn along with him, is found in the final stanzas of his song. In 317 to 19, we quoted a bit of this in our prayer this morning. He writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This is is one of the most powerful expressions of faith in all of Scripture. He's basically saying, even if life is hard, even if he has nothing, he'll still praise God. He'll still trust in God. He'll find his joy in God alone. And so we can see that he's gone from complaining and lamenting to contentment and joy because he's learned to trust in God and not to view him based on his circumstances, but on his holiness and upon his wisdom and upon his love. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 basically defines what he's just learned. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So Habakkuk has discovered this. He's discovered the secret to peace, to lean on and trust in the Lord. So even and especially when circumstances are hard, and life doesn't make sense, we should run to the Lord, knowing that He'll walk with us and strengthen us for the trial, that He's faithful in the process, and that He'll make all things right and turn it for good in His perfect time. We can believe this. We can trust in it. And this is what the Apostle Paul encourages us to do as well in Philippians 4, 6-7. When he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What an amazing promise. And this is, again, this is exactly what Habakkuk did. In his lament, he turned to God in prayer and supplication, and, and God brought him, him from a place of worry and confusion to a place of peace beyond understanding and supernatural joy. Even in the midst of all that trouble. 
And so like him, when we take our focus and our eyes off of our circumstances and on our own understanding and instead turn and place our trust upon the sovereign and faithful and glorious Lord for our strength and our peace, then we can also rise above the troubles of this world and proclaim with thanksgiving and worship, praise the Lord, my joy and my strength who enables me to walk on mountain heights. Or as the Apostle Paul writes, for whether we are in abundance or in lack, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Mm -hmm.